I mentioned this in the first hour. I want to say it again. It's, uh, it's wonderful to want to get up and preach after having just been led in worship like that. So thanks to our whole team. Such a great, great time this morning. Super thankful. And I'm going to try to get my voice back from staying on the back wall and trying to sing along with Peyton to breathe through the stars. That's just never a good idea for me to try that. But so great. Thankful for that. Hey, one other thing I wanted to mention to you, you probably came in and awkwardly sat down on a piece of paper. We wanted that to be weird. And so we wanted you to be aware that we have put together this 2024 list of all of our mission trips, our missions committee here at this campus and all of Bethel and all five locations. These are the trips that we have scheduled for the coming year. I would like to invite you to pray about partnering with these trips in one way or another. Perhaps that means you actually go on some of or one of these trips. Perhaps it means that you support and fund and help someone actually be able to afford to go on these trips, but hopefully for all of us, certainly we're also praying that the gospel would be given in all these different contexts. We say it a lot down here that we're not just going over there and coming back and cutting the conduit. We're going to establish bridges and, and arteries in which they over there are us and we're them over here. And we have these relationships and these wonderful connections that we feel like what's happening in Milan right now. Those are our brothers and sisters gathering around the gospel there or in Barcelona or in Sierra Leone, West Africa or in Nicaragua. So this is a massively important opportunity for us as a church to get to express our delight in the gospel here, there, and everywhere. One of our elders at this campus is Nathan Atkinson. Nathan kind of quarterbacks missions efforts from this campus. If you've got any questions, find Nathan. He's usually got a jaunty hat. He's easy to spot. Now then, I want us to pray together as we continue to ready our hearts, minds, even our bodies for worship. I want us to pray together, and then we're going to unpack scripture together as an act and an expression of worship. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning in the midst of all kinds of potential distractions, in the midst of all kinds of potential disappointments, you, the sovereign king and creator of the cosmos, want to connect with us, to communicate to us, to remind us that you are for us, you see us, you love us, and you have our very, very best in mind. So may we relent our agenda and may we trust you. May we seek you out. You've told us that we will find you. So here we are, Father. Speak. Your servants are listening. We pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's no secret that it's November. And for me and my household, or maybe just for me, November usually means sports. I am a humongous fan of sports. I'm contractually obligated at least twice a year to make a sports analogy. So here's number two at long last. Sports. I like sports. I like the, the whole coordinated effort of somebody moving a thing from there to over there and they do it really fast and they get paid billions of dollars. I like sports. And clearly, since I happen to have the athletic prowess of a ficus tree, I like watching sports because I can kind of affiliate and I can identify, hey, those are people who are vastly more gifted and talented than I would ever be. It's fun, and I see the strategies, and I was explaining to someone the other day, I like sports because it is the modernized, if I may use this term in church, the evolved form of combat. From antiquity, if one clan or tribe had some resources and another clan or tribe wanted them, you just came over with 
weapons and you hit them and you took their stuff. That's just how the world worked. But now we have things like basketball. Now we have things like hockey and football where people who are non-participants like me, whose hearts would absolutely explode if I even got near a, a field of grass, we can identify, we can affiliate and associate like that's my people, that's our tribe, that's our team, and we can stack hands, lock arms, we can all agree, and there's no casualty in this combat, usually. There's not supposed to be casualty, we just identify, and we all vie together. And there is all these different players, and there is diversity, but yet there is unity because they're pursuing a common purpose. And one of my favorite parts about it, particularly in college athletics, is there is a jersey. The jersey is the thing that you wear to identify who you are, to whom you belong, and what you're trying to accomplish. And usually in college sports, you'll see the name of the team on the front and the name of the individual on the back. Now, this happened literally just yesterday. I'm watching one of the big college football games yesterday, and one of the guys, uh, one of the play-by-play analysts asked the, uh, the color analyst, said, hey, this quarterback is having to hand the ball off all the time. Does he mind not getting to pass? And the color analyst, a guy by the name of Joel Klatt, put it this way. He said, the individual is faced with a choice on every occasion. Which name is more important, the name on the chest or the name on the back? And I paused it and rewound it, and I thought, my gosh, he just read 1 Corinthians 8. It was amazing. It was the most perfect synthesis and summary. On every occasion, on every play, you have to ask yourself, which name is more important, the name on the chest or the name on the back? And the jersey brings us together, and you'd see all these guys get together, and they would get all hype, and they're jumping around, and they're yelling one another. And what are they doing? They're yelling the team name. All for one, one for all. And if you ever had a team come together right before a game, and they all put their hands in there, and they all shouted their own name, Bill! That would be a breakdown. Like, why did, why did, why did my man Bill just say Bill? No, we, we're Chiefs or Patriot, whatever. No, no, you, you, you're for the team. And so that really prepares us. Thank you, college football analytics, for telling me my big idea. It goes very simply, but yet very repeatedly, like this. We, not me. We, not me. That is to be one of the hallmarks of the church, is that we are identified by us more than I. It is we, it is not me. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I will just say this, as we are less than a week out from Thanksgiving, I am so thankful, I'm so grateful for a church in general and a campus in particular that really does adopt this mindset that primarily, mostly, not all the time, but close, it really is a we, not me kind of mindset and mentality. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And then we'll see if we can unpack it a little bit, and then we'll apply it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Now, concerning food offered to idols, well, that pivoted quickly. We were talking about should we stay married or not or get divorced? Okay, let's talk about some prime rib, shall we? Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for 
us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Oof. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word. Sin is not just so much this stuff that we do. It's what oozes out of us. It's who we are and what we do on autopilot. The Bible says that sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. Even passive stuff that we're not really paying attention to can become active, aggressive sin against Jesus Christ. Now that ought to snap us to some level of coherence and attentiveness. The Apostle Paul is writing this book to the church in Corinth. It's 16 chapters. Lord willing, we'll finish chapter eight today. That means we will be halfway through. We'll pause for our Advent season. We'll pick up in chapter nine in January. For now, I want to remind you, the Apostle Paul is sitting in Ephesus writing his second letter to this church in Corinth. He was with them for 18 months. The church in Corinth is probably about four years old by now. The occasion of the letter is that the church was starting to come apart at the seams. They were having all these divisions, all these fissures, all these factions, all these isms and schisms. And Paul says, no, we cannot have that. Too much is at stake. And so he's answered a lot of the reports that he got, and he issued six chapters of rebuke. In chapter 7, he began to issue some responses. Now concerning the thing about your marriages. Now concerning the things about sexual purity. Now concerning the things about uh, abstinence and divorce, those kinds of things. In chapter 8, we're going to pivot. But you need to know this. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all one very long, massive unit. There are some appropriate divisions, but really it's all dealing with the exact same thing. After all of the rebukes, after dealing with marriage, which you wanted to hit right at the front end, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all one big massive chunk. What's the issue? Individual entitlement. It's amazing to think 2,000 years ago, a people group in the Western world and Western civilization were dealing with the heightened individual's sense of entitlement. I know it's hard. We've totally evolved past that. Yeah, no, more simply put, they were selfish. Now, when I say selfish, I don't mean that brother-in-law that you're thinking is coming to Thanksgiving. He is. I'm talking about the kind of selfishness that is not just arrogant and pompous, but that intentionally puts his needs above that of the group, of the community, of the neighborhood, of the family, of the church. That in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, has a name. It's from one of my heroes in the faith, a guy named Bruce Waltke. Bruce was kind of the, the professor to professors. This is how he put it. Both Testaments, the righteous in Hebrew, the Sadiq in, in uh, the New Testament in Greek would have been the diakonosune. Those two people, the righteous, 
are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. We go low, we raise our arms, we elevate everybody else. That's the righteous. The wicked are not just bad guys doing bad things. No, no, the wicked has always a very specific, particular manifestation. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Now, this is how the church is called to live in the real world, in the fallen world, in different stages of life, these Christians that come together in churches. Not every single one of you became a Christian in exactly August of 1982. Not all of you. And so by definition, a church is going to have people who are in different stages of sanctification, of maturity, of growth, of regress, of growth, of regress. So how does a church come together with all these different souls and experiences and family systems and educations and all these things? How do they come together and deal with real issues that are likely not expressed directly in Scripture? This is as real as it gets, the rubber meeting the road. My old hero, Tim Keller, used to say, Wisdom is the ability to deal with 80% of life that is not covered in Scripture. Have you ever thought about that? Well, what about this issue? It's not in Scripture. I mean, predatory lending, well, that's kind of covered in Scripture, but how do I apply that to my day and age? Wisdom is knowing how to deal with the 80% of your life that is not expressly dealt with in Scripture. So, having said all that, knowing how to live life in those kind of gray areas would be really helpful. And for that, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a central, wonderful chapter. Just 13 verses long, but it's packed. And he says, now concerning. Now that other thing that you wrote about, not divorces anymore or marriages or abstinence. Let's now talk about this other issue that you're having. Food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. <laughs> this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul's such a clever writer. He's quoting back to them. When they wrote him a letter, they said, hey, Paul, we know we all have knowledge. They're not just bragging that they all have their Awanas vests, okay? That's not what's happening. They're not just bragging that they won the, the memory verse game. They, they can beat Paul in a sword drill. No, 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 no. Unfortunately, Corinth, like Tyler, exists in a real place with real problems, Corinth was one of the epicenters of the Greek philosophy called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, there was a select group of kind of esoteric, illumined people that they said they had secret knowledge. They knew how to connect the divine spark in you back through eternity past so that you could have connection and communion with the one true God. And you had to go to them for the secrets if the price was right. But then the Apostle Paul strolls into town in the late 50s AD and he spends 18 months with them and he gives them true enlightenment. He gives them the gospel and they are converted, but they're not raptured out of their setting. They were still peddling in, oh, okay, so we're Christians, but we also have the secret knowledge. So we know that we have knowledge. And Paul's going, oh, you, you, you don't understand. You, you think you have knowledge? You don't. You're not just incorrect. More importantly, you're incomplete you are using it wrong. This knowledge that you claim, it puffs up like a puffer fish or like me after Thanksgiving meal. You're just larger than you should be. You're occupying too much space, displacing too much water. You're not really substantive. You're just inflated. That's what too much head knowledge does. Love, on the other hand, builds. It bolsters. It blesses. It energizes. It edifies. It equips. You've been focused on all this intellectual things. You think you know. You don't know what you think you know, he's going to say here. 
Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Oh, you think you know, Corinthians, but you don't. You've allowed the culture to sweep in and corrupt the truth of the gospel that I gave you. Now watch verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You are sacrificing fellowship for the sake of intelligence. Always a bad idea. Never good, don't do it. This agape, to wanting the other's highest possible good, a well-reasoned concern for the other, a moving of my life and all of my energy and resources towards you, that builds. What you are doing is causing crumbling. Now, I have to remind you, this is Corinth. 220,000 citizens, 400,000 slaves, so 600 plus thousand people. There's one church. And if that church crumbles, the gospel light goes out. Too much is at stake to just let this go on. All these divisions and fractures, Paul says, we have to stop that. We have to mortar these cracks back together and make them strong. So you're pursuing knowledge. You're kind of, you're just incomplete and you're going about it the wrong way. So again, here in verse three, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, this is a super clever zing by the Apostle Paul. Pretty amazing what he says. Whoever loves God, he says, and that can only happen by knowing God through his word, so that's good, illumined by his spirit, that knowledge, if correct, must translate to loving God. And that person is in turn known by God. Now, Paul drops a proverb. Paul is an Old Testament kind of a, uh, an apostle. When you squeeze Paul, the Old Testament comes out. He drops a proverb in there very subtly that says, those who love God are known by him. Those who do not love God are far off from him. Now, is God omniscient? Does he actually know everybody? Yes, but this known by God is gnosis. It's this deep, experiential, intimate relationship. That's the gnosis that we're talking about here. But Paul says, let me explain. You think you know something. Let me show you how you don't. It's a bit of of a zing. He says, they claim to know God, but they aren't doing a great job of loving one another. And so they don't really love God, which means that they don't really have the knowledge that they think they have. You think you're so smart? Let me see, how do you guys love each other? You don't? You're not. You're so proud of how smart you are, but you're not loving each other. Therefore, you don't really know God. Therefore, you don't really love God. Therefore, you don't know nothing. You used to. What happened to you, Corinthians? Oh, you got infected from the outside. Ah. Now he's going to do some of the most amazing martial arts in the text that you will find anywhere in the book of Corinthians or in the New Testament. It's one of my favorite passages of all time ever. Buckle up. Verse 4. Therefore, he's going to repeat the issue. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that, hold on a second. He's about to make a case. There were those in Corinth who were saying, hey, we have enlightenment. And it's not a super popular thing to say, but we in Corinth who are in the church, we're enlightened. We understand that there's only one God. Those, those other false gods of Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite or the Roman versions of Jupiter and Venus and Mars, we know that those things aren't really real. We know this. Paul goes, well, look at you, Sparky. You must be so proud that you know that there's not a lightning God who has relations with swans. Good, good, good for you. You figured that one out. But now he's gonna do some unbelievable Old Testament jujitsu and judo. He's going to use their energy back on them. This is as bare knuckles as it gets. All right, here we go. Therefore, 
As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Ah, so apparently they were quoting some Old Testament to Paul. They're quoting from Deuteronomy 6, perhaps one of the most central passages in the Old Testament. There is Exodus chapter 3 when Moses approaches the burning bush and God says, I am that I am. I am, um, I'm like, uh, I, I am and I'm like, uh, what, uh, I am like me because there's nothing else like me. Moses, take off your shoes. To which Moses says, and I quote, humana, 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 and he throws his shoes away. The second most concrete foundational passage is in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. We call it the Shema. It means to hear, the hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Shema Israel, Eloheinu Adonai, Eloheinu Echad. And Paul would say, oh, you want to you quote that to me, do you? Great, bring me your Shema. I know a thing or three about the Shema. I know a thing or three about Old Testament. I know a thing or three about there being one God. And now he's going to toss them on their ear. End of verse four, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven, that's these alleged pantheon of Greek gods, Roman gods, not to mention probably some holdover from Egypt and maybe even some of the Canaanite stuff that they had trucked in, but they're not real. They don't actually exist. Are there spirit beings in the world? Yes, but they are not gods. They are not divine. So Paul's not qualifying that. Or on earth, he says in verse five, so-called gods in heaven or on earth. That has to do with what's called the imperial cult. Every Roman emperor got to establish a temple in one of the major cities of his empire. Those cities were called Neochorus. And it was a big, humongous deal. The cities competed for and vied for getting one of the emperor temples because everybody in the empire was required by law to go to that temple at least once in their life to pay tribute, give money. It's kind of like getting an NFL franchise today. You want that stadium, you want all the parking, you want all the concessions. Every ancient Roman Empire city wanted an emperor's uh, temple to be established there. And so they had one in Corinth. So alleged gods and lords. Yes, those apparently in heavens and those who are on the earth, all these emperors and Caesars. As indeed, there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords. Verse six, yet for us, there is one God. Now he's gonna rehash from the New Testament, the Shema. There is one God, the Father. All Paul's theology stems from his prepositions. All of Paul's theology always stems right through his prepositions. Watch this. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We are from him, we are for him. Do you see the whole circle of life? We are from him. In him, we have our meaning, our our movement, our breath and our being. That's what Paul preaches in Athens at Mars Hill in God. And so he does the same thing to these Corinthians. We are from him. We are for him. And this is where he totally drops the hammer on him. One Lord Jesus Christ. Watch the preposition. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now this is absolutely marvelous. Paul says we are from God and for God, but we are through Christ and through him. God is the Father. He is the one who has basically been planning all this. But the agency, the executor of all of this is Jesus. Now, what they weren't connecting the dots on, Paul says, oh, you want to quote Shema? Let me, let, me, let me go one better on you. He drops Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter, directly into Shema. 
But one God, that is true, we have one God. But there is Father and there is Son. This is part of Paul's brilliant Trinitarian theology. You may be thinking, hold on a second. He hasn't talked about the Holy Spirit yet. Parchment was expensive. He'll get there in chapter 12. Come back in March, okay? This is a wonderful declaration of the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. There is one God, but there's also one Lord. My old professor at DTS got named Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost. If you're going to be a seminary professor, it's helpful to have a last name like Pentecost. Because Jones is, I mean, what are you going to do? Dr. Pentecost used to say, the Father is the architect. He draws up all the plan of salvation and redemption. The Son is the builder. He's the one who actually constructs, does all of the work. He is the executing arm of the triune Godhead. And the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is the realtor. Holy Spirit is the one who shows you the property and engages and woos you and invites you inside and closes the deal. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you believe in one God and that frees you up from having to worry about these other false gods so you can eat all the meat you want. You're missing the point. There is one God, but you know who else was God? Jesus Christ. And we know from Galatians, we know from later in Corinthians, for 18 months, Paul says, I placarded Christ crucified before you. That was the content of my preaching. For 18 months, I simply preached Christ crucified. You know that there's one God? You've missed the point, he says. There is one God, the Father, and our Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we exist, through whom all things are. And what did this Jesus do? Very specifically, what did this Jesus do? He laid down his entitlement and his right for people that didn't deserve it. And he was God. You think you're so smart that you don't have to be aware of people who are not as far along in their sanctification and their spiritual maturity and growth. You're going to quote the one God? I'll quote you the one God. Look what Jesus did. And you arrogantly, apathetically, or ambivalently think this doesn't matter. Oh, Paul says, it matters massively. Now, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, having been weak, is defiled. He is not saying that they're in sin or that they're um, to be shamed. They're just, they're just weaker. They're not as far along in their journey. They're brand new believers. And listen, they used to make a habit of, of that kind of temple practice. What's going on? Let's talk about meat. Other than sports, I'm gonna talk about meat, all right? This is gonna be like total mandate, all right? In ancient Corinth, as much of the Roman Empire, meat was a delicacy. It was very expensive. Not just anybody or everybody could get meat. It was reserved for the wealthy and the privileged. And really the only place you could get meat at all was in the temple. So what would happen? You might have a dove, you might have a lamb, you might have an, a bull, something. You would take it to the temple and the priests would sacrifice it for you. Uh, they would take all the gross internal parts and they would just burn that off or they would ship it off to Louisiana for gumbo. Uh, or... <laughs> They would chop the meat up and you would get to eat the choicest parts of the meat. And that's what was gonna sustain your family for quite some time. But you would also leave some to sustain the priests, these cultic pagan priests. They would eat on the meat, but it was probably still too much meat. And so you would sell the excess meat to the little restaurants that were part of the temple. Yes, the temple, in fact, was where all of the restaurants were. They didn't have different streets lined with cafes. And, no, the temple was the social hub. And there were some good things that happened there. Mostly there were some bad things that happened there. But that's where the restaurants were. So the restaurants would take these 
choice cuts of meat and they would serve them and they would sell them. And you could maybe, if you had money, you could go and sit there and you could dine on some meat. But if even that was still too much meat, then they would sell it to the market and the market would sell that meat in the temple, or in, the, in the market, sorry. And there was really no other place to get meat back then. It was sort of a delicacy. And so a young person who's only been a Christian for a week or three, maybe a year, sees a mentor or a discipler, someone who's further along in their faith, just smacking down on a Philly cheesesteak sandwich at the temple of Aphrodite. He's going, I, I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand. I'm not throwing rock. But boy, I remember when I used to do that, and that was pretty, pretty good. Maybe, maybe I want to do that again. So Paul says, no, no, no. If you're thinking that way, that that's okay because we know better, we, not me. So he says, uh, verse seven, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food and are, as are really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. God doesn't care. Food is amoral. The color of your shirt, amoral. Not moral, not immoral, ah, moral. It doesn't matter. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But, this is interesting, nine, verse nine, take care that this right of yours, this right is the word exousia, this authority that you have, this liberty that you love, take care that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have, all, who have knowledge, you, who allegedly have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is not just dangered, not just damaged, destroyed. It is the word apollonia, to physically die. What? Why is Paul saying that that's wrong? Is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. This suddenly escalated. I, I know that we don't probably really understand the severity of what was going on in Corinth, but this is how life was. You probably didn't have a lot of resources. You had an extended family, and maybe you were experiencing some hard times financially. Your crops weren't working. The, the last sea voyage, the ship sank, and you lost everything. So you take your last lamb, and you go to the temple, all kinds of gross things happening at the temple. You have the lamb prepared. Other stuff burned off. You feed the priest. You feed your family. And you take that meat into you. And the thought was you were literally consuming the God, taking his life or her life into you. You were taking that God's life in the divine into yourself, hoping against hope that there would be some blessing, some mercy, even though the track records were all terrible because the gods were all cranky and cantankerous and ornery and not to be trusted, but you did it anyway because you were desperate. And so you did that and you took the little money that you had and you really wanted to make sure that to the best that you could. You, you wanted to have fellowship with the God and there's not a whole lot of conscience in you because you're a not redeemed person and so you'd go around to the backside of the temple and all the underaged, trafficked people, boys and girls, were waiting to, you to select them and then you, you had fellowship with the God through that interaction and then you heard the preaching 
of this little bald guy with a big nose and a unibrow with oozy eyes. It was bow-legged. And he told you that Christ was the son of God, that our sins are many, but his grace is so much more, that our sin is many, but his grace is so much more. And you repented and you gave that up and the revulsion and the reminding of, oh, but I was doing those horrible things. I wonder, we're not gonna have a show of hands. When was the last time you were actually ashamed of the thought that became a word, that became a deed, that became a damage? These people would have been reminded on the daily, I was engaged in that, and it was darkness, it was pain, it was a horror for them, for me, and I know better now. And now there's my Sunday school teacher in the temple having a stake. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this, was all a, maybe this was all a joke. Maybe this was all a fabrication. Maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I'm not really a believer. Maybe I'll just go back into that life. Paul says, don't you get it? You're not even paying attention. It's we, not me. Do you have liberty? Yes. But you have to be aware. Your actions or inactions are causing others to go down a path of almost certain destruction and death. And you sin against that brother. Your passive sin becomes active sin against that brother. And then this is crazy. The brother, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You overstepping in your liberty, you heap shame, pain, misery, accusation, and anguish on the bloodied cross of Christ. You, you, you want to just be able to do whatever you want to do, huh? No, 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 no. It's we, not me. Your actions and your attitudes, our actions, our attitudes, they matter. And so he says there in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Not legalistically, not legalistically, but because, hey, I'm thinking of y'all. It's we, not me. Their issue was individualism, entitlement, and selfishness. And by the way, it's the same stuff that's been plaguing humanity since Genesis chapter three. And it's the same thing that we get to band together and address and be aware of. It's a very serious problem. Yes, it's a gray area. It, it, there's, there's a lot of leeway and liberty. But you know what's fascinating to me? I've already mentioned that this section is a three-chapter section, chapter eight, nine, and 10. You would think that Paul could have addressed this in like three verses. Oh, you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Okay, here's what you do. Kaboom, 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 done. Moving on to chapter 11. No, because it really wasn't about meat. The real issue is about their individualism, about their entitlement, and about their selfishness. And so Paul goes all the way through to the end of chapter 10 before he finally tells them what to actually practically do. He does answer the question. But first, he's got to root out the selfishness, the entitlement, and the individualism. Since you're hopefully going to sleep at least a couple times before January, let me read you the very end of chapter 10. We'll revisit this sometime mid-late January. This is what he says at the very end of chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. I'm not going to unpack this. I'm just going to read it to you. So you see, oh, Paul has this whole notion that he's got to address. And I'm in this massive three-chapter chunk. Verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He's already addressed this in one of his previous responses. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You do have liberty and license, but if it doesn't build up, don't do it. 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now we're gonna get the very specific instructions. Verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Don't ask, don't tell. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Don't, don't make a thing of it. Just eat it. Don't ask questions where it came from. Verse uh, 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I love Paul to drop Psalm 24 as a reminder. Hey, God is sovereign. You don't have to worry about that. He is good. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, okay, Chick-fil-A, chicken nuggets. Were those nuggets, was that chicken sacrificed to Hades? Shut up, eat the nuggets. My pleasure, don't, you don't have to worry about that. Don't ask questions, just eat it, it's fine, it doesn't matter, it's not corrupting you or corroding you because it might have been near some wicked spirit. Stop it, it's nuggets. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of his conscience. Now, we'll stop there. It really is remarkable and how practical and real our New Testament can be on things like this. So how do we walk around? How do we leave here with that notion, that idea of we, not me? Let me give you just a few quick principles on this. Hopefully these will be somewhat portable, hopefully a little bit memorable. Number one goes like this. Build, don't bubble. We have a tendency, particularly in a Bible church, to want to build, I mean, to, to, to invest in doctrine and theology and truth, and that's good. But Paul's instruction, his exhortation, his invitation is to build with love. Don't bubble. Let me say it more directly. Bless, don't bloat. Okay? Bless with love. Do not bloat. Some Christians grow, some Christians merely swell. You don't want to be swell. You want to grow. Here's the deal. There are plenty of Bible churches out in the world that really emphasize doctrine and theology, and I totally affirm the place for that in the church, of course. However, if all we ever are is intellectually correct but utterly brutal to one another, then we're doing it really, really wrong. And we'll begin to fracture and to decline. Remember, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus. About 30 years later, Ephesus, that church there with whom Paul spent three years, Ephesus gets a letter from Jesus. And Jesus writes to them in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. He goes, hey, you guys are crushing it in doctrine. You can spell Mephibosheth and Methuselah. Good job. But I'm taking my lampstand because you have forgotten to love one another and you have forgotten to love me. Your doctrine is great. Got it. Good but you've forgotten your first love. And so he removes the lampstand from the church at Ephesus. Today, there is nothing there. So having said all of that, I am super, so super grateful on this last Sunday before Thanksgiving that we have a church and a campus that is theologically sound and that is absolutely incredible at loving one another. The stories that I hear coming out of our life groups or our Bible studies are simply incredible. We even had an opportunity this past week and one of our members had a mild heart condition and just to see all the people mobilize and pray and, and share. It's incredible. It's so touching. It's one of my favorite things to get to hear and experience. Bethel downtown has always been fantastic at looking after one another, even in some delicate and highly sensitive situations. And I certainly simply couldn't be more proud. We're going to continue, of course, to lean into discipleship, and that includes a wonderful study of God's Word, and the fruit of all that is intended to be love of God and then love of others. So when you find yourself being totally accurate but miserable to be around, okay, there's grace for that. Repent. 
Build, don't bubble. Bless, don't bloat. Okay? Second point goes like this. Love over liberty. Love over liberty. This is one of those gray areas, and it requires a situational consideration. It's not cut and dried. One size does not fit all. But when you have the choice, choose love over liberty. Now, you might be thinking, now, hold on. I, I don't really think I'm going to have a problem going to Luby's and having my cod sacrificed to Aphrodite. Probably not going to happen. If they do ask you that, say, yeah, actually, I'll pay extra for that. They're not going to ask you that. It's probably not going to be a real. So what is the issue for us? Are we going to have Christians arguing about eating meat sacrificed to idols? No, there's no idol temples in Smith County, to my knowledge. Probably not going to be a problem. So what is it? What do we deal with? Well, I have seen Christians chew each other's faces off in this church about should you private school, public school, or homeschool? We will go to war. We will use our nails. We'll use foul language about a topic that the Bible does not speak to directly. What about, for some of you, even though it's now the 21st century, we kind of crossed this bridge, but what about, for some of you, the issue of dancing? Pretty much, as I'm looking at your faces, it's not a problem because you all know better. You shouldn't dance anyway. Not ethically, just, just from a coordination standpoint. You just <laughs> cut that out. But of course, in our context, in the Deep South, there are issues of alcohol consumption, and they're all issues of diet Paul says, if I have to be vegan, I'll be vegan. I'm going to start something. He's even like going to do the Daniel diet, a full keto, and eat nothing but quinoa for the rest of his life, if he has to, because food's not the thing. We don't have to worry about that from a moral standpoint, but from a us standpoint, from a we standpoint, we always want to choose love over liberty. And if there is someone with whom you disagree about a particular point or topic, the kind of school you send your kids to, the issue of dancing or the issue of education, whatever it might be, we do not get to chide or guilt or shame anybody else for their practice of life just because it might not be as enlightened as we think our position is. Agape, love them. Surprise them with a Stouffer's lasagna. Thought first. Wash their car, whatever. If there's somebody that you disagree with, bless them. Just gorilla bless them. It'll blow your own mind. Love builds. Again, I have to say that our campus, our church, has done so great at this. Please, please keep it up. Third point goes like this, and it's very brief. It sort of summarizes and synthesizes the whole thing. It goes like this. When in doubt, do the most loving thing. Well, duh. But that's Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 20. Like, when in doubt, do the most loving thing. See, Paul brings big principles to small problems, and we get to do the same thing for this 80% of life the Bible doesn't directly discuss. I don't have to or want to unpack this a whole lot, but you ever faced with the crushing or with the choice of crushing someone in the face with doctrine or loving them well? I would counsel loving them well and sure with correct doctrine. But it is amazing how much more palatable good doctrine is when we feel loved and cared for and validated and understood and like we actually exist. And this is good for our church, our community, our families, our marriages, pretty much everything. Praise God for a church where we do have a lot of people in various stages of growth. And that means that the Spirit is active here. And again, I am so grateful on this Thanksgiving week for a church that does precisely this. We, not me. Now, just to put a real fine point on it, again, like Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to do, so too can we. Look at Jesus where that 
jersey. In fact, one of my fighter verses, one of the verses that has been so instrumental and impactful and influential to me is Romans 13, 14. It goes like this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We are in Christ. That means when we are in Christ and Paul tells us to put on Christ, he's the jersey. He's the jersey. And the name on the front is Jesus. And the name on the back is Jesus. And we just get to wear that. We get to stack hands. We get to lock arms and we get to go, go Jesus. We, what the scriptures call his body parts, band together and we wear the Jesus jersey and we say for his sake, for his glory, which will always be for our good. We don't have to wonder or pray or ask about that. When we celebrate King Jesus and Team Jesus and the gospel goes forth and it's we, not me, God is glorified. So may it continue to be precisely that in this place. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this church. Thank you for your spirit, for the finished work of your son, for your word, and for the presence of your people. We do pray, Father, that you would continue to bless and build and bolster the bride of Christ. If there is someone here this morning, Father, or listening remotely that doesn't know you, that is still trying to manage and mitigate their conscience, would you convince them? Would they be persuaded that our sins are many, but your mercy is more? Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. That they would step out of death into life and when they would talk with someone in this church or a family member or a friend about walking with Christ. For the rest of us, Father, would we be ever vigilant, aware, intentional about how we conduct our lives in the world to not cause people to stumble, but instead to edify, to build, to love, just like Jesus. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.